Well, our scripture reading this evening is from the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 4, and you'll find that passage, I think, on page 638, if you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, which is the New International Version. While you're turning there, Andrew has the book table uh, today, and he's asked me to recommend a couple of books. Uh, The first is the one David mentioned today, uh, which I can mention without embarrassment for two reasons. One is because he wrote it and I didn't, and the other is because I haven't actually read it. Uh, But for five pounds, it is obviously a bargain, and uh, I'm sure when he's back with us next Lord's Day, if you bring it back having purchased it, he'll be willing to autograph it for you. And then uh, Andrew's asked me to bring this little book to your attention. Those of you who keep scores, um, some people are just like that. They notice statistics. You will have noticed that the three people David Robertson most frequently quotes from this lectern are all named John. At the top of the tree is John Calvin, most frequently quoted author in the last six years anyway, because I'm one of those people that takes note. Then uh, coming in third position is John Flavel from the 17th century, um, whose works David loves. And then in second place, at least in the last couple of years, has this been this gentleman Uh, John Chrysostom. Uh, His name was not Chrysostom. That was his nickname because he was such an eloquent preacher. Uh, He was the bishop of Antioch and then the bishop of Constantinople uh, in the declining days of the Roman Empire, uh, late 300s, early 400s, and far and away the most eloquent preacher uh, of the, the early church so eloquent that he was able to castigate his vast congregations for their lack of sanctification, and they would respond by applauding him. Um, Maybe we should try that sometime. And then he would rebuke them for applauding them, and they would just applaud even louder. So he was, uh, he was uh, Calvin says of him, of the early fathers, he, he of all of them handled the Scriptures best. And this is a bite-sized biography. Everything is bite-sized these days. It is three pounds, which is a bite of a cake somewhere in town. And I think, although again I haven't read this, I do know the author a little, and I think I'm able to commend it blind and so I'm recommending it to you without any prejudice uh, whatsoever. Um, And uh, I think you will enjoy getting to know this extraordinary uh, servant of the Lord who actually suffered much for the gospel. And uh, he was pastor of a church that supported hundreds, if not thousands, of widows and people who were greatly impoverished 
so he moved among the high and mighty who at times hated him. They actually got rid of him at one point, and he moved among the poor and lowly. So that's John. And then I asked David this morning if I could recommend to you and give away this evening copies of Table Talk, the magazine of Ligonier Ministry. Um, these are free. This is the evergreen edition, which means it's not limited in time. Uh, it includes uh, Bible study helps for the month, all kinds of interesting articles, uh, some of them by people whose names you would recognize. Um, and in my own view, uh, I have read it, and my own view is by far and away the best of this kind of thing. And David was telling me this morning that his mother reads it. So that is the ultimate recommendation. Great-grandmother Robertson takes and reads Table Talk. Um, and you can uh, order it if you want. Uh, there's, a, there's a, what do you call this, a bookmark. There are, there are free bookmarks as well. And I think it will cost you no more than the price of a cup of coffee a month. So it's a, a, a been a blessing to hundreds of thousands of people who read it every month. Um, so I do want to encourage you to uh, take a look at it. And uh, five pounds, three pounds, and nothing. Now, um, I don't include that in the sermon time. I hope that's okay. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 27. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil." Now, any of you who do actually keep score and who have the kind of um, memory that grabs onto things will perhaps think when you read this passage, isn't this the same passage that we were studying the last time we were looking at Proverbs? And indeed it is. I didn't realize that until I had given David the passage for this evening, but after some reflection, I thought there is so much more in this passage than what you have forgotten we thought about last time. And so, I want to take this passage again and expound it now in a, in a somewhat different way. And the justification for doing that is because the, the center statement of this little passage in verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, is one of the central statements in the book of Proverbs. Um, if there are 
two emphases that emerge from this series of talks that a father gives to his son in the opening chapters of Proverbs. They are these basic principles. Number one, wisdom comes from learning to know God, that is, from learning what he calls the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord that brings you to a sense of awe before him and a sense of childlike reverence before him and love for him. And the other is this slightly more negative concept that if you're going to grow as a Christian, you need to learn to guard your heart, to guard your heart. And it's this that we're going to be thinking about again uh, this evening. We moderns associate the heart as a kind of metaphor, or perhaps even more than a metaphor, for our emotional life. Uh, Heart shapes, what does that speak of? Speaks of affections, speaks of emotions. Uh, As one of my uh, former colleagues used to say, actually Will Traub's uh, Old Testament professor, the Hebrews placed the seat of emotion further down the anatomy. And so the Old Testament speaks in the old but accurate language of bowels of mercy, uh, gut feelings, as it were. And so when the Old Testament refers to the heart, it's not primarily speaking about our emotional life. Um, In the book of Proverbs, the word heart appears about 100 times. Of those hundred times, about 40% of the time, it's referring to our minds and the way we think. Another 20% of the time, it's referring to our affections and the way we, we feel. And another 15% of the time, probably, it's referring to the will and our desire and volition, our commitment. And so you might say that whenever the author speaks about the heart, then, then one or two or perhaps three of these ideas are always present in his mind. The heart is seen not as a part of the anatomy, but as the, as the heart, the center of what makes you who you are. Um, Peter, you remember, puts it this way, speaking to ladies in the early church. He, he speaks about the hidden person of the heart, what you really are, that, that group of drivers and motivations and desires and senses of things and affections and volitions that make you who you really are. And according to the book of Proverbs, and and we can sense this in our own experience, that always comes out. That's what makes us different from each other. Uh, Not just what height we are or what we look like, but the, the hidden person of the heart.
And of course, because we are made for God, this is the reason the greatest commandment is that we should love Him with all our heart. And, and perhaps that means with all our heart in this sense, with all our minds, with all our souls, with our affections and desires and volitions, and with all our strength. And what the author is emphasizing here is the importance of guarding the heart because our spiritual health and well-being is determined by the condition of our heart. And you'll notice here that he emphasizes, therefore, how important it is to guard it. Actually, the ESV is much better here, if I may say so, than the NIV, because it, it brings out the fact that the author uses two similar statements to emphasize the importance of this. Um, in, the, in the English Standard Version, the, the statement is, listen to this, keep your heart with all vigilance. He's really saying, beyond, beyond everything that you guard, keep an eye on your heart. It's repetition for the sake of emphasis. And of course, the reason why this is the case is because this father is saying to the son, you need to guard your heart as though your life depended on it, because your life does depend on it. Your eternal life depends on it. And who you eventually are depends on it. And those of us who are getting older, we see this. You don't see this so obviously when you're, when you're younger, but you see it when you're older, and, and you can see it clearly enough in people who are older. They, what they are in their hearts begins to emerge in their lives. And if we have failed to guard our heart, then that becomes more and more obvious in the, in the personalities that emerge. And so, for the believer, he is emphasizing here the importance of keeping the heart. And I want us to focus this evening on how we are to do this how do we keep our hearts? And I say that because at first glance, this father tells his son, son, keep your heart, guard your heart. But like many other passages in the Bible, you don't get a list of how-tos. So, I think what we find Christians tending to do is well, I need, I, need to go to the, the, I need to go to the book table to see if there's a book called How to Guard Your Heart, because the Bible doesn't tell me how to do it. It tells me to do it, but doesn't tell me how to do it. Um, or I just, you know, the Holy Spirit will, will do it. But I want you to notice that here, as in so many places in the Scriptures, if, if we will just be patient with the Bible and not just assume that it doesn't tell us how to guard the heart. We'll see, I think, fairly clearly in this passage that embedded into the instruction this father is giving to 
His Son is the manner in which He will be able to fulfill this exhortation. And this happens in this passage in a very interesting way. Um, many of the passages in the book of Proverbs are like, are like psalms. When, when you read many psalms, you'll notice this, that they, they head towards a center point, and then they head from that center point. I want you to notice that that's what happens here. The center point of these verses, 20 to 27, is the exhortation in verse 23. And verses 20 to 22 move towards that exhortation. They they provide us, as it were, with something that lies underneath that exhortation. And then verses 24 through to the end of verse 27 move away from that and shows, so what does that exhortation look like when we put it into practice? So, to put it simply, how do I keep my heart? He gives us two answers. Answer number one, you keep your heart by treasuring the Father's Word. And that's in verses 20 to 22. You keep your heart by treasuring your Father's Word. Now, this is very interesting for us, certainly as Christians, if we had been Old Testament believers, the same would be true. This is the record of a a dad instructing his young son how to live for the glory of God. But now it's being embedded in Scripture. So, for an Old Testament believer, this instruction was part of the Word of God. And you remember how the author of Hebrews uses these talks the Father gives to the Son and says, because this is part of God's Word, the way you are to hear these passages are to think of them as, this is my heavenly Father speaking to me. great illustration of that is Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. That's what the Father says to the Son. But then when the author of Hebrews quotes this in Hebrews chapter 12, he wants these Christians to recognize this is your heavenly Father speaking to you about His chastisement of you. And this is the way we are to receive these words. If we're the children of God, we are to learn to treasure the Father's Word and to hear Him saying to us, be attentive, my son, to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Now, now why this emphasis on the heart? Because from the Bible's point of view, remember Jeremiah's words, our hearts are wicked, and they're, they're not naturally inclined to the Lord. And so, we need to guard them. We need to superintend them. Later on in Proverbs, there's a marvelous statement that expresses this. A man who lacks the control of his heart is like a city whose walls have been destroyed. And and that's the case, isn't it? 
Uh, and we see abundant evidence of this when, when we do not guard our hearts. We, we become like broken cities. Everything that can destroy us will rush in, and all the filth will rush out. And that's why we need to guard our hearts, because as the Father says to the Son, it's out of your heart that the issues of life are actually determined, and you need to keep a careful watch over your heart. And you'll notice that he uses very strong language about how we do that. We do it by treasuring our Father's words. That means being, verse 20, attentive to them, not just hearing them, but being attentive to them, inclining our ear to them, letting them not escape from our sight. Uh, now, that's interesting, isn't it? It's not, notice, it's not, don't let them escape from your hearing. It's don't let them escape from your sight. And we'll see more of the reason for that in a minute. He's saying, always keep the Word of God in view in everything that happens to you, in every situation you meet. Don't let them escape from your sight, because they will, don't they? Um, how much of this morning's exposition has already escaped from your sight? Or yesterday's Bible reading? He's saying if you don't preserve them, guard them, keep them in view, make them reference points of the whole of your life, then they'll, they will walk away. You remember in Jesus' parable, if, if the Word does not go down into our hearts and is kept there, then the birds of the air will fly down and they'll steal away the good seed of the Word. Um, I am quite sure Satan populates church doors with those birds. Don't you think that uh, the Word has just fallen on our hearts, and before you know it, it's been, been stolen away? Um, Now, I've sometimes thought in my more cynical moments about churches who are absolutely convinced of the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's Word that I, I sometimes want to say to people, so when did, you last, when did you last pay attention to most of the teaching that's in it? You don't really believe in the inerrancy of God's Word, or you don't believe it's really God's Word. You have a cavalier treatment of it, a ho-hum attitude to it. And the Father, the Heavenly Father, is saying to us, um, that, means you, that means you need to actively engage in preserving in your heart the Word that I speak to you. Your Word, says the psalmist, have I hidden down into my heart that I might not sin against you. And, you know, when you, when you get to meet older Christians who have lost most of their mental faculties 
but who did this in their earlier life, it's still there. But if you feed your soul on spiritual toast, believe me, later in life, all you'll be able to have is toast. You'll have nothing that really gives you hope. And so, this is a lifelong discipline for us. For this very simple reason, we become what we eat spiritually. We become what we eat spiritually. And it's evident. You know, it's one of the blessings of being a congregation where people are old as well as young that you see there are people in the congregation who actually have become what they've eaten. And that's true Well, it's true physically, isn't it? And that's a big problem, but it's really true spiritually. And this is why it's so important the father is saying to his son that he's got to to guard the Word of God that he has heard. So, in a sense, that's the foundation of his exhortation, keep your heart with all vigilance. And, And that means storing the Word of God in our hearts. Um, But then he moves out from that, and he says, the way to keep your heart is not only by storing the Word of God in your heart and holding on to it, closing the doors around it, meditating on it, uh, but also then letting it out into your life because, he says, your heart spiritually is it's connected to everything that you do. And he picks out three ways of describing this that are typical of all of our lives, three parts of our anatomy that express the way in which the truth about our hearts emerges in our lives. And so, verse 24, he speaks about our mouth and what we say. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Now, what's the connection here? The connection here is that that what we say is an expression of our hearts. What we say is an expression of our hearts. It's a revelation of who we really are. It's a revelation of our true relationship with the Lord. It's out of the mouth, says Jesus, that the heart speaks. So, whenever you speak, it's your heart that's operating. You understand that? Whenever you speak, it's, it's your heart that's operating. It's telling us what's in your heart. And as you know, the, the, I guess you could probably preach 30 sermons on what the book of Proverbs has to say about how we speak. And uh, he's saying, you know, that's, a, that's an index of our, our hearts. Um, there's not a word that comes out of your mouth that originated in your tongue or on your lips or on your teeth, or in your mouth. 
It originated in your heart. And that's why it's so important to guard your heart. Because what is in your heart will emerge in your words. And so, for example, in Proverbs 10, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. And you know that if you talk too much, don't you? You go away from a conversation where you know you have talked too much, and transgression has not been lacking because much of it has been about you or about your opinions or about what's wrong with them. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So, where are you in the scale of lip restrainers? That's pretty challenging for some of us, isn't it? The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Now, you you notice the parallel there? He's saying the same thing negatively, first of all about the heart, but then about the tongue, and he's connecting them. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Now, listen to this. This is Proverbs 10, 32. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. Well, these lips don't know nothing. Watch my lips. They don't know nothing. There is no information stored in those lips. What's he saying? He's talking about what comes out of the heart. It is because of the character of our hearts that the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. And then there are lots of positive things too, aren't there? Um, And this, of course, is, is what he wants us to understand, that as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, as we treasure it up in our hearts, it flows from our hearts because we have disciplined our hearts with God's Word, and it flows from our hearts into our speech. So, you're in a situation where you just say the wrong thing. You just say the wrong thing, and you say, I, could, I should have kept my mouth shut. And truly, you should have kept your mouth shut, because Proverbs says, if you keep your mouth shut, even if you're a fool, some people will think you're wise. So, you'd have been better to keep your mouth shut. But what was the problem? The problem was the Word of God was not controlling your heart in such a way that out of your heart you were able to say the right thing. And there's a lot of this in Proverbs, that the, that the words that come from a disciplined, word-saturated, renewed heart are words of kindness. They're words of encouragement. They're, they're words that, that build up. And 
And this is why it's so important, he's saying, to guard your heart and to store your heart with the Word of God. Because not only does it suffocate that wrong speaking, that gossip, but it so saturates our lives with the grace of God in the gospel that 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 begins to emerge in what we say. Isn't it? uh, You must know somebody like this. You you think he or she, they just always seem to know the the right word, just the, the right word. That's not just because they've got a good vocabulary. It's because their heart has been stored with the, with the teaching of Scripture. And so, they've learned from Scripture, as we saw earlier on when we were talking about Proverbs, the Scriptures, and the book of Proverbs in particular, gives you experience before you've ever had it. And this is what the Bible does for you as you, as, as, as you immerse yourself in it. This is why David can say he's not only wiser than his enemies, he's wiser than his teachers. Because the Word of God is stored up in his heart. And that means that what comes out of his mouth is as careful and guarded as the heart that he's been keeping. But then you'll notice in verse 25, he, he, he moves up the head a little, put away from you crooked speech and devious talk far from you. Then let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Have you ever heard this indictment of a man? He's got wandering eyes. You know what that means, don't you? He's got wandering eyes. We have had public figures of whom it's been said publicly. You watch him, and he has wandering eyes. Uh, But there's a spiritual parallel to that too. And so, the Father is saying to the Son, our Father is saying to us, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. What does he mean? He means focus. Now, focus on the Word of God. Because in, in the life of the Spirit, uh, you need insight as well as eyesight, don't you? And what's so interesting about this, as I think I've sometimes said before, is that the Scripture teaches us that Christians learn to see through their ears. Our sight, that is to say, our focus and our understanding, our insight, is related to the condition of our heart, and the condition of our heart is fed for its benefit by the Word of God. And so, the more we hear the Word of God, keep the Word of God in our hearts, the more clearly we will be able to focus on being obedient to the Word of God. If you, think of, if you think of four of the great disasters of the Old Testament, um, you'll notice how they're related to sight and not looking straight ahead. That is, to seeing things and evaluating things exclusively at the level of the visible and not at the level of the verbal. 
First illustration's obviously in Genesis 3, isn't it? What went wrong with Eve? She saw that the fruit looked delicious to eat, but that wasn't the relevant factor. She didn't keep God's Word before her. She wasn't looking straight ahead at God's Word, or what she would have seen was that fruit overlaying with God's command not to eat the fruit of that tree. Or Lot's wife. I mean, this seems an, this seems an absolutely catastrophic thing in, is it Genesis 19, that Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt just because she looked back to see the kind of volcanic eruption on the plain. Um, no, she turned into the pillar of salt because she in her heart, went back. And she didn't keep in her focus that God had said, you need to run out of that place and don't look back. Or Achan, you remember. Uh, here he is, and uh, there, is, uh, there is the spoil in the tent, and he saw it but what he didn't see was that God had said, don't take it. Or the bookend of tragedy in the life of David, when there is Bathsheba bathing on the roof of an adjacent house, and we're told he saw her. But all he saw was a beautiful naked woman. Apparently, he didn't see you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not kill. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You will not covet anything that is your neighbor's. And because, because, the, because the Word of God was not coming from His heart through His eyes, tragedy so you see how it works. You see, I mean, it's, it's, it's easier in a way for us to see how it works negatively because of these great tragedies. But this is why He's urging us to store up the Word of God, to guard our hearts, to, to preserve the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, so that it will, it will craft into the lenses through which we see everything that we'll see things not just with eyesight, but with insight. And, you know, it seems to me, with my vague memories of my youth, that this is one of the things that makes us stronger when we're young Christians. When people are saying, look at this, do this, come and join in with us in this. And it can be so crushing, you're going to feel outside they're going to talk about you behind your back. They may not be your friends any longer. Uh, but when, when, when you remember that the Scriptures give you clear vision and that this is God's way, and if you're going to suffer for it, then you're, it's not really about you. That's a great thing to learn when you're a young Christian, isn't it? All this hassle people give you because you're a Christian, it's not really about you at all. You're a, you're a perfectly pleasant young person. It's because of the antagonism 
that emerges because you see and they are blind and they hate it. They're like the dwarfs, aren't they, in Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. A feast is prepared before them, and they can neither see it nor taste it. So, yes, this is a matter of the way in which, by God's grace, we guard our hearts, and our hearts are connected to our mouths. We guard our eyes because our eyes are connected to our hearts. But then you notice he speaks in verses 26 and 27 about guarding our feet and how we walk. And it is one of those things, isn't it? You know, you pick up the phone and somebody says hello. Nine times out of ten, you know immediately who it is. If you're walking down the street and you see somebody in the distance just walking there, isn't it amazing how you can you can just tell somebody by the way they walk. And, and that's what he's talking about here. When the Word of God is stored up in your heart, it comes out through your mouth, in your eyes, and through your feet. And it, it creates a different kind of lifestyle. And this is the metaphor that Paul picks up in Ephesians 5, isn't it? When he when he says, now you belong to Jesus Christ, walk in love. You belong to Jesus Christ, walk in the light. You belong to Jesus Christ, so walk in wisdom. I have a friend who was at a large international law conference. He came down, and they are never held in, you know, the they're never held in the slums of Glasgow. They're always in nice places. He, he told me he came down this marvelous staircase, and as he got to the bottom, this other delegate at this big law conference came up to him and asked him, do you by any chance go to, and he mentioned the church that this man went to. My friend was absolutely astonished, absolutely astonished. How did he he didn't know. Here's my guess. I think he came downstairs the way his minister came downstairs at the end of the service. That's what I think. Now, we're told to walk as Jesus walked, to put our feet into His footprints. And that, long before this father is able to tell his son about the Lord Jesus, that's what he's really saying, isn't it? If you belong to the Lord, then you will walk the way he walked. You will live the way he lived. And people will see it. They just will see it. They may hate it. They may like it. It may puzzle them. It certainly will puzzle them. They, they will not have the reference points to interpret who you are, because the reference points to interpret who you are are all found in the Word of God and in the heavenly glory of God. And you have a totally different reference point. You march to the beat of a different drummer. And it's all because, as a believer, you've learned to guard your heart. Now, here's the thing. 
This is the big thing the Holy Spirit did in the life of the Lord Jesus. This is the big thing the Holy Spirit did in the life of the Lord Jesus. You remember how Isaiah in 42, 49, 50, 52 to 53 is these poems about the servant who is going to come and be the Savior, the Lord Jesus. And in chapter 50, he, 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 he puts these words into the mouth of the servant who is going to come. He puts these words into the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus says, morning by morning you awaken me. You open my ears so that I'll hear your instruction. And because I hear your instruction, I'll do anything for your glory. And that's how he became what he became. He wasn't able to speak gracious words because he had magical powers, but because he had his Father's Word hidden in his heart. And actually, that's what Isaiah 50 says. Because the Father wakens me every morning to hear His Word, and I hide it in my heart, I am able to speak a word of consolation and comfort to those who are weary. That's something, isn't it? You know, you can tell people who are weary to go and have a holiday, but to comfort them and encourage them and lift them up and say the right word, oh, that's something very, very special. And you remember when he was tempted in the wilderness. The Word of God was before his eyes. Isn't that interesting? Stones, turn them into bread. From one point of view, that would have been perfectly legitimate. He turned a few loaves into enough food to feed a multitude, didn't he? But that wasn't that wasn't God's will for his life. And so he says, what does he say? Well, he says, you know, I think I need to go to the local Christian bookshop and get a book on temptation that will help me here. Now, what he does is he goes back to a passage in Deuteronomy that I am afraid most of us Christians would not be able to find. And he plucks out the Word of God that was hidden in his heart. And he says, be gone, Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. Satan says, look at all these kingdoms of the world. Look at them, Jesus. You have come into this world to gain these kingdoms, and I will give them to you. Again, how does he, how does he respond? By bringing out of his heart the Word of God that is being hidden. Jump down from the temple tower. Show them the power and glory of God, signs and wonders, and they'll all believe Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, they may believe for a while, but none of them will be saved by me jumping down from the tower. And so he rebukes Satan again with the Word of God. He's doing to Jesus what he did to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and by giving in was the way of tragedy and disaster. By refusing was the way 
of salvation and life. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, every single syllable that's in the Bible has this goal in view to enable us to live in this world like the Lord Jesus so that we can live in the world to come with the Lord Jesus. And that's why it's so important to guard your heart. You've been guarding your heart. I mean, really guarding your heart. I should shut my eyes when I ask that question, really, shouldn't I? Is there any hope for you? Because you've not been guarding your heart. Well, there's David's prayer, isn't there, when he had failed to guard his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, and then I'll be able to speak your word appropriately to sinners. That's what we need, and it's the only safe way to live. So, by God's grace, let's guard our hearts as though our life depended on doing that, because it does. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that comes to us both to search us and to sanctify us, to teach us the riches of Your grace and to make us more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You as we belong to this church that we can think of others in whom we have seen a likeness to the Lord Jesus. And we understand that however much they may have failed, they have, they have stored up Your Word in their hearts, and You have shaped them and molded them by the truth of Scripture. And that's why when they speak, we listen, and when they walk, we watch. And when we see what they focus on, we want to gaze like them on Your Word and on Your Son. And we pray You would help us to do this. We have all failed and fallen so far short of Your glory. We live so superficially. We lament that our lives make so little impact upon others. But we thank You that we are Yours in Christ. And we pray that by the power of Your Word, You would change us. We have no power of ourselves to, to do better or to be different or to, or to straighten our twisted and warped personalities. But Your Word can do it. And we thank You that Your Word is at work within us. We know we're not yet what You have called us to be, but we know that You have done new and wonderful things in us, given us new desires, brought us to love Your Word, and we pray that we may love it more and more and treasure it more and more so that we may live more and more for Your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.